From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A problem that's still unsolved. Despite two decades of reforms, sexual assault remains all too common at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, as CPR's Dan Boyce reports. You speak with Academy leaders, and there's almost this tone of exasperation about it all. Am I proud that I still have to work in this field? No, I would love to one day say I've had to move on to something else. We've tackled the issue of sexual violence, but we haven't. Next steps remain unclear. Then, Charlie Sampson made history, becoming the first African-American to be crowned a world champion bull rider. I rode bulls because I had nothing but desire and want and determination. How Sampson overcame injuries and a lot of prejudice. From accountability journalism to stories focused on solutions, climate reporting has become an integral part of the in-depth coverage you depend on. Understanding current and future challenges and solutions is vital, and you and your community need to be informed. That's why we're asking you to step up and financially support CPR's climate coverage. Your gift goes directly towards supporting this impactful and important journalism. Invest in the future of fact-based climate reporting at CPR.org climate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Sexual assault is a growing problem at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. That's what anonymous survey results show, which the Pentagon has released. The news lands 20 years after a national sexual assault scandal at the Academy. Structural reforms since haven't rooted out the problem, as Dan Boyce has found. He is CPR's Southern Colorado reporter and covers the military. Hi, Dan. Hi, Ryan. Tell us about the latest findings. Every two years, the Defense Department does this big survey at, at all three military academies. you got the Air Force Academy, West Point in New York, the Naval Academy in Maryland. As you said, it's an anonymous survey, and cadets are asked this list of questions related to sexual harassment sexual assault. The most recent survey was done last academic year, 2021-22, and the number of respondents saying they had been victims of sexual assault rose at all three academies. It, It hit new records at all three academies, actually, but those figures really spiked for women at both the Air Force and Naval Academies, with 22 and 23 percent of women saying they had experienced unwanted sexual contact in the previous year. Unwanted sexual contact. Let's uh, get precise. What does the Pentagon mean by that? The Pentagon basically uses the language as a a synonym for sexual assault. It is a wide range of, of anything from unwanted touching all the way up to rape. The important distinction, though, is it is a higher bar than sexual harassment. The survey happens every two years normally. They didn't do it in 2020 because of the pandemic. So we go back to 2018 And then it was 15% of female cadets reported sexual assault. And even that then was a record. Okay, again, a jump from a record 15% to 22, perhaps as high as 23% now. That's right. Remind us what happened two decades ago. I referred to that earlier scandal. It was pretty much exactly 20 years ago. February and March 2003 was when this really started heating up. An anonymous whistleblower messaged top military brass in the media saying the Air Force Academy was dominated by this toxic, misogynist culture. And you had 
catcalling and harassment of the relatively small number of female cadets, that that was just a constant on the academy grounds and that there had been this long trend of downplaying what was a large amount of just full-on sexual assault. And the whistleblower account led to an inspector general investigation and a survey. A survey. What did that survey find back then? It found that of the female cadets who had graduated in 2003, 12% had been the victims of rape or attempted rape in their four years at the academy. So specifically rape, not the broader definition of sexual assault. Right. Goodness. Okay. Uh, I spoke with Rachel Van Landingham. She's the president of the National Institute of Military Justice today. She was herself a cadet at the Air Force Academy in the late 80s and early 90s. And she calls 2003 a watershed moment. That was the first time the Air Force started to really take seriously the idea that structural changes and continuous oversight of the Air Force Academy was absolutely needed. What kind of reforms came out of all that? It was a lot. So now if you go to any U.S. military installation in the whole world, not just the academies, so bases, everything, you will find a sexual assault prevention and response office. They call it a, a sapper office. Those offices came directly out of this scandal at the Air Force Academy. The method for reporting of assaults changed. And eventually those anonymous surveys, like what we're speaking about today, started coming out. The military has been putting a lot of resources behind this for two decades now. And yes, we still see record numbers of sexual assaults at the academy. Square this for us. Right. You speak with academy leaders and there's almost this tone of exasperation about it all. So here is Sonia Strickland. She currently runs the Sapper office at the academy. Am I proud that I still have to work in this field? No, I would love to one day say, I no longer have a job. I've had to move on to something else. We've tackled the issue of of sexual violence, but we haven't. Looking at the gender balance at the academy, it's more or less 75% men, 25% women year over year. And some say that imbalance, you know, might add to the likelihood of these sort of assaults happening. So uh, officials try to tackle it in, in a number of different ways. And Strickland, she just lists, you know, this whole litany of things they do. Cadets receive mailings long before they arrive on campus that talk about alcohol policies, sexual harassment policies. And once they get to campus, they receive healthy relationship workshops. I brought up this gender balance question with Rachel Van Landingham at the Institute of Military Justice, and she much more dismissed the theory out of hand that maybe having a larger share of female cadets could help. I do push back on that because that's assuming that sexual frustration is the primary driver of sexual violence. And that's been shown in the social sciences as not being accurate. It's the social context of gendered stereotypes. It's dealing with power and power dynamics and and domination that are more greatly tied to sexual violence than purely sexual frustration. I mean, she seems to suggest that it remains a broader cultural problem. So what have the Academy and the Pentagon been doing more recently about this persistent problem of sexual violence? There are some notable changes to point to. A a rule change just went into effect in 2020, which dropped many of what are known as collateral misconduct charges. Collateral misconduct? What does that mean? It's like, say, an underage female cadet gets drunk on Academy grounds And then she gets assaulted. If she comes forward and reports the assault, she will not get punished herself 
for the drinking. That's new as of 2020. And that and that's a big change because many people I spoke to for this story say that was a big deterrent for women in coming forward before. The idea that if you came forward that you also would get punished yourself mm. for drinking on campus, something it does, like that. It makes me wonder, Dan, if that change is why we might have a clearer picture of what's going on. So and, it, like, is this a spike or is this a clearer picture of what has always been, you know? It's an interesting discussion, and it, there is a distinction here. So, again, what we're talking about that just came out from the Pentagon were these anonymous survey results, uh-huh. which people uh, – so people taking these surveys are not coming forward themselves. There also are numbers that the Academy releases of formally reported sexual assaults. Mm. Those also have gone up, okay. and they have gone up quite dramatically too. They went up from – in the 40s to 55 in the most recent results that were put out. So there has been a rise there, too. That's uh, important perspective. Thank you for it. I'd like to have you tell us about the Teal Rope Cadets you recently profiled. Who are they? The Teal Ropes. That's a group of volunteer cadets. Right now it's around 96 of them, mostly women. And they volunteer to go through training to basically serve as a first point of contact for victims, sort of a liaison to connect potential victims to the system for reporting assaults, which that sort of thing can be a daunting process for victims. Maybe it's easier if they speak to someone their own age or in their cohort or something. Exactly. And they call themselves the teal ropes because they wear this uh, very apparent braided teal-colored cord on their uniform so victims can see exactly who they are and who to talk to. Dan, these new survey results came out of the Pentagon in the past few weeks. What do military leaders say will happen next? Well, uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, he did release a memo along with that survey, and it talks about next steps, though I describe much of it as the sort of We'll be doing evaluations and and studies of our policies to figure out what needs to be changed, that sort of thing. But there is something more substantial coming up. So on the academies, like in the military justice system, most crimes are prosecuted by commanding officers. Now, last year's defense budget contained a provision which moves the prosecution of some of those crimes, and that includes sexual assault by service members, the prosecution of those crimes away from commanders and into the hands of independent prosecutors. That provision goes into effect at the end of this year. Listening to your reporting, it, 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 it feels so vexing. And it makes me wonder if there should be some kind of screening of cadets who I might be prone to something like this. I, is this about the homes they came from where something like this is permissible? Well, it's such an interesting question because the cadets who end up at the Air Force Academy are already supposed to be the cream of the crop. Right. right? Like, I They're think, nominated. They have to be nominated by a congressperson yeah. to get there. And the entire academy is is absolutely rooted in an honor code. The word honor is pervasive all around the academy grounds. In fact, even for some minor transgressions, a cadet will end up in this room to be judged on how well they are fulfilling an honor code, Hmm. sort of a jury of their peers. And they will sit in a seat in this building called Polaris Hall. 
the entire building is built around this one seat and the as if a focal point and the chair aims directly to a window that points at the north star this is all supposed to be underlining how important honor and integrity how important all that is to a cadet's experience at the US Air Force Academy so i think that it makes such a a long standing and persistent black mark around sexual assault all the more distressing and troublesome. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you, Ryan. Dan Boyce is CPR's Southern Colorado reporter based in Colorado Springs, where he also covers the military. We'll be right back with a tool that helps keep the gears of democracy turning. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. He's kind of epitomized what Negro League Baseball was all about. You played for one reason, you love baseball. Black history, baseball history, and William Bebe Richardson in the latest Colorado In-Depth, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. To represent your state in Congress is to be a jack or jill of all trades. Lawmakers in Washington might take up wildfire prevention one day and diabetes care the next, or cement, or space force. And there are caucuses for each of those issues I just listed. CPR's D.C. correspondent, Caitlin Kim, helps us understand caucuses' impact. In 2020, two of Colorado's largest wildfires raged in Democratic Representative Joe Neguse's district. As he worked to help constituents recover, he noticed something. There really wasn't a place in Congress, uh, an organizing principle, a place where folks could come together to work on these challenges. A light bulb went off. He approached Representative John Curtis, a Republican from Utah whose district also got hit by wildfires, and the Bipartisan Wildfire Caucus was born. The biggest achievement, in my view, from that caucus has been our advocacy during the appropriations process in the last cycle, the 117th Congress, and for the prior two fiscal years, for increased investment in wildfire mitigation and resiliency. Say the word caucus at the U.S. Capitol, and most people think of the Democratic and Republican parties in each chamber. But there are hundreds of other groups, some big, some small, some ideological, some not, that bring members together to work on issues important to them. After the success of the Wildfire Caucus, Nagus launched a couple of other bipartisan caucuses this year. One focuses on the Colorado River, the other on fentanyl prevention. Nagus says the topics he takes up are locally driven. Which means following the, the guidance, the insights uh, of our constituency back home in Colorado. So getting a better sense of their, you know, the pulse of the community, what issues matter to them, and then really leveraging our office as a vehicle to be able to achieve legislative change here in Washington. It's how a caucus works together to make change that Democratic Representative Jason Crow looks for. He helped found the Four Country Caucus, a bipartisan group of veterans that he says works well together in part because of its makeup. And we're only about 30, but we punch way above our weight. Uh, because we're balanced, we're Republican and Democrats, and we're not an ideological caucus. So there's people on the far right, people on the far left, and everyone in between. He reckons the caucus has helped pass over 70 pieces of legislation because of the friendships that have developed. That's one benefit that most Colorado lawmakers highlighted, the ability to get to know people you don't share a party or serve on a committee with. Freshman Representative Brittany Pedersen was pleased to be asked to join the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus because they take the time to get to know one another as well as roll up their sleeves and work. Like so many Americans, I'm sick of watching 
people in Congress not work together to solve problems, but um, especially here with people who are much more interested in headlines and doing the real work. Um, although there's a lot more people that are doing the work than the small percentage of people that do crazy things that are covered. Caucuses also give lawmakers leadership opportunities that aren't always available within their party or committees. Republican Representative Ken Buck recently formed an antitrust caucus with Democratic Representative David Cicilline. The two led an antitrust subcommittee in the last Congress, but Buck was passed over for the chair of that subcommittee this Congress. So instead, they formed a caucus. And since I didn't get the committee and didn't have the ability to hold hearings, it would be an opportunity to highlight big tech. Especially as the Senate and courts weigh in on big tech antitrust issues. It's really important that uh, I believe and David believe that we have some voice in the House to um, stay uh, relevant. Buck, like many other members of the Colorado delegation, also belongs to partisan or ideological caucuses. He's a member of the House Freedom Caucus, which comprises the most conservative members of the House GOP. He says caucuses like that discuss bills of the week and also strategize on longer term issues like the debt ceiling. So those caucuses are informative. Uh, They're helpful for me to look at uh, issues from different perspectives. And Molly Reynolds, who looks at governance for the nonpartisan Brookings Institute, says it's not about the number of caucuses a member joins, but the type. But I do think that if you had a member who was really only joining partisan caucuses, that would certainly tell you that that person is choosing to invest more of his or her time in kind of partisan activities than in building bipartisan relationships. Reynolds says having bipartisan friends can pay long-term legislative dividends, even on bills that have nothing to do with the caucus where the friendship began. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a world champion bull rider who reflects on his place in history and the unsung riders who came before him. You're with CPR News and KRCC. In Colorado's subalpine areas, you might spot a greenish-gray toad hanging out in shallow waters, sporting a white stripe on its back. Each boreal toad is further distinguished by its own belly pattern, as unique as a fingerprint. You won't hear the boreal toad croak, as it doesn't have the vocal organ to make that sound, but you might hear this delicate chirp. Instead of drinking, the toad absorbs water through a patch on its skin, and that can be infected by a fungus that's depleting amphibian populations worldwide. The boreal toad was once common in the southern Rocky Mountains, but has declined drastically over the past few decades. A hundred toads are now in the Denver Zoo's care in a conservation effort to restore the animal in the southern Rockies. With thanks to biologist Danita Weeks, this is a Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of National Jewish Health. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Rodeo is thrilling. It's also risky. Those are probably interrelated. Anytime a person decides to get on a bull, he has made his mind up to give up his life. Or he don't know his life has been jeopardy. So he just gets on it because he just feel that this is something that he wants to try. That is Charlie Sampson, the first African-American to be crowned a world champion bull rider. It was in 1982. Later, he was inducted into the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame in Colorado Springs. Sampson lives on a ranch in Aurora. 
He spoke with my former CPR colleague, Joanne Allen, who continues to produce her own podcast, Been There, Done That, which celebrates the baby boom generation. Fear, patience, determination, and hard work are what catapulted Charlie Sampson to become the best bull rider on the planet. Needless to say, bull riding is a dangerous sport. Charlie is quoted as saying, I have broken every bone in my body except my nose. Sampson's rise to the top began when he was a boy in south-central Los Angeles. To be a bull rider, you just don't just jump on it for saying, I started out 11 years old uh, riding ponies, riding horses. Uh, eventually, I rode steers. By the time I was 15 years old, I got on my first bull. So from 11 to 15, I didn't know, you know, I was going to end up being a bull rider until I got on that first bull. And by the time I turned 16, Seemed like things just took off from there. Well, what was it like that first time that you actually did ride a bull? Do you remember it? Yes, I remember it. I remember it like it was yesterday. And only way I'll try to describe what happened on that bull. Have you ever been on a roller coaster? Unfortunately, yes. Okay, so if anybody been on a, a roller coaster or motorcycle or if anybody been on a, you know, a dip. So for a bull, you know, he's so powerful and he's so quick. For a kid that's 15 years old, I've always been small. So I don't know if I even weighed a hundred pounds, but I got on the bull, just the same routine I've done for a couple of years on a steer. And that means you put the rope around the steer belly, uh, you know, the bull belly, you know, you got to warm it up. You put your hand in the handhold and your buddy pulls it and you take a wrap. So once you take that wrap, you literally tie it on that bull. So only thing you're relying on is your legs and your grip to squeeze the bull. So with that said, all I had to hold on was the bull rope and my legs. So I held on and the bull turned out. And once the bull turned out, the centrifugal force or the power from the bull was so swift and so fast, I, I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I, I literally don't know. All I know is he turned out and took two big jumps. And I went up, he went down, went up, and it was just a natural instinct where I just injected myself off the bull back. And I hit the ground running. Thank goodness I didn't land on my head or my back like you can when a bull throw you off. So I got up running, you know, just petrified. And the guys, they looked at me like, what the, why did you do that? And I looked at them like, what, you know, what, what, what happened? They said, man, you was riding that bull easy and you just jumped off. I said, I don't remember anything. <laughs> I remember, all I remember, sitting on that bull's back and hold on to the rope. And you got a nod. You know, the nod means you're ready to go. And they won't open the gate, you know, unless you nod. Mm -hmm. 
So I just, like I said, I, I nodded. And once the gate opened, all I knew is I, he went up, he went down, he went up again, and I was, I was off. And I just, I don't know what happened. Mm. I just don't know. Well, you talked about, um, I mean, I'm sure there's a high or an adrenaline rush in riding a bull. Well, yeah, that's what it turned out to be, was my drilling was so high and I was so, you know, I guess afraid not to know what I wasn't doing. I just never been on a bull. I went from riding steers, which weighs an average 400 to 500 pounds to, you know, 1800 pound bull. So, and he was a lot bigger, you know, a lot more power and a lot faster than I was accustomed to. You know, I rode racehorses and, you know, that's, that's, that's exciting. That's, that, that gets your drilling running, but the power of a bull, you just holding on with one hand. And so, yeah, my drilling, must have been going pretty fast. Does the fear subside as you go along or as you went along in your career, or was there still fear towards the end of your championship time? I think that played a big tribute into my success because I was always afraid. I knew, I knew, you know, I wanted to hang around the Cowboys. I wanted to go and be around, you know, the majority of the Cowboys were older and they were, they would take me places, you know, out of LA that, you know, my family wouldn't take me and my family didn't know, you know, what I was doing, you know, being at the stables. And, and fortunately, you know, everywhere I went with the older Cowboys was like a field trip. It was so much fun. So when I started competing and I had to compete on the steers, you know, I was afraid, but I, I, I knew I was going to compete because the guys, you know, not that they wouldn't took me anyway. It was just, you want to come with us? Yeah. All right. Then you're going to ride a steer. It's like, can I just come and not ride a steer? <laughs> well, no, you're going to ride a steer. I said, oh, golly, I don't want to ride a steer but I want to go. So I went and I got to ride this steer. Why I got to ride this steer? But I got on and, and whatever it was, I just knew I can ride him. I just held on. But at the same time, yeah, it was always that fear. It's always that fear of not knowing, you know, that steer is going to hurt me. Am I going to get my hand out of the rope? Cause you know, I seen other, steer riders and cowboys you know they hang up to the steers i see them get hurt and you know i got scraped up a couple times and not that i wanted to give up it's just you know you have to learn the technique and uh that was just a love love hate at the beginning that i had to overcome when I watch bull riding, which I have to admit I don't look at it a lot because it makes me nervous, but when I've watched the camera that's close on the rider who's preparing and he's getting his hand in the right position and I guess 
curling the rope around your hand. And, and then there's this tap, this hard tap, right before the nod is given to open the gate. What is that? What is that, that thing that you're doing? You're just making sure that it's tight? That's part of the routine. That's part of a, a ritual that you develop. And what I learned is, obviously, once I got to that point to where I was successful and I had more confidence and more knowledge, once you get in there and they tell you, you know, what bull you get on, so it's a mental preparation way before that time because you're there at the show early, you learn all this stuff. So mentally, when I put my hand in that rope and I pulled it and took that wrap for the last time, uh, the next move is to nod for the gate. So when I pounded on my hand, that was just a signal to my subconscious mind, hold on and don't let go. Did you ever sit there while, you know, the bull is kind of moving around a little bit and you're preparing to go out and it's like a second or two before the gate opens. Did you ever stop a ride because something didn't feel right? No, because once I got to a point in my career and, you know, basically older, because I, you know, I got on my first steer and I was like 12, 13 years old, got on my first bull when I was 15. And I started competing when I was 16. You know, I went to New York when I was 17. I went to a rodeo school when I was 18. So after the school, the teacher taught us the mental part of the bull riding. Because he was really, you know, into psycho-cybernetics and the mental aspect. So by the time I was 18 and a half, I was more into psycho-cybernetics than I was anything school had to teach me. Maxwell Marx was a motivational lecturer, and he had a book called Psycho-Cybernetics. And it basically was just teaching you about believing in yourself, trusting God, trusting your vision. So an instructor said this is what helped him become a champion. So at that same time, nobody was more enthused about being a cowboy and a bull rider than I was. And nobody was teaching that method. So I fell right into it. It helped me with my career as a bull rider. And it helped me as as I lived every day, even today. You know, all the psycho-cybernetic books was part of my routine and learning, you know, understanding, you know, some of the words, what the Bible was teaching, uh, I didn't understand a lot of it, but I had that same emotion from the pastor where they would talk, same way I felt when I read several books. You know, I could feel the emotion of the writer, and it led to me in my everyday lifestyle. So in bull riding, believing, trusting, and, you know, working out and studying and trying to perfect what the teacher had taught us at the school, you know, what it takes to be a a bull rider. So I I coordinate all of that in my mind turned out to be successful for me. 
You were inducted in 1996 into the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame, and you are one of two African-American cowboys to have been inducted into the National Cowboy Hall of Fame. That was back in 2008. And you've been called the Jackie Robinson of professional bull riding. Uh, Ms. Allen, there's a lot of history between those lines. And, you know, I'm proud of what I accomplished. And every day, you know, I'm learning history. Wow. Every day, you know, I'm learning history of a black man, African-America. You know, I'm learning, you know, every day what I accomplished. But one thing I do understand is what I accomplished was at my time. Unfortunately, before me, there was other black cowboys that had the same vision I had. Unfortunately, they didn't have the same opportunity that I had. I know several cowboys that rode in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and I listen to their stories. I hear their stories, and they're proud of me. And I said, well, how come? They said, well, you know, it's, it was a different time. But I hear these stories, how great you were and how tough you were and how successful you were. Well, how come you didn't be a champion? He said, well, at our time, the association you were competing in, which the majority was all white and run by white structure. So a lot of places we wanted to participate in, we were denied or we were discriminated against. And I said, well, that's a part of life that I didn't understand because I didn't live that life. I didn't, I wasn't taught that life. So when I hear the past, it's kind of sad that, wow, I'm the first but by right, I shouldn't have been the first because I heard so many stories about Willie Thompson, Murtis Dykeman, Freddie Gordon, all these great cowboys. One cowboy, he's sticking out. He, I can't say his name right now because it's just so much on my mind. But they would tell me these stories about these black cowboys and I would say, well, why didn't they win a championship? It's because they wasn't allowed to compete. Why they wasn't allowed to compete? Because the the town, the producer, the rodeo stock contractor, the judges wouldn't allow them to win. You know, the rodeo secretaries, you know, the, the stock contractor, just horror stories. I'm like, wow, that is so sad. So... When I won my championship, that was a time where I had worked for it because, you know, I, I had wrote down goals. I worked at it. I visualized myself as a world champion. I was able to meet some of the quote-unquote white champions, and I got to see their championship buckles. And I didn't understand, you know, what was denying me of having one of those. So with that said, I envisioned 
me being a world's champion. And as I became the world's champion, the white cowboys were right there supporting me. So when it was all said and done, and I'll go meet the black cowboys, uh, they was proud of me also. You know, they they knew that one of us eventually was going to be a champion. And my mentor was Murdis Dightman. But some of the older white cowboys, that's the first thing they told me. You shouldn't have been the first world's champion. I'm like, well, I don't know. They said Murdis Dightman should have been the first world's champion. He's the one paved the way for me. And I said, yes, he was right there when I was a kid that I showed him a picture of me riding the bull because he would come to Southern California. You know, he's the one that opened up my eye to want to be a bull rider, to want to be a traveling cowboy. And when I won my championship or when I was rodeoing in Texas, I would travel with Murtis. He was my hero. So that night I was winning, you know, I was going to be the champion. I called Murtis and made sure that he was right there to pull my bull rope. So to let him know, hey, Murtis, I heard you know, a lot of stories about you're denying, but Murtis never told me them stories. He never expressed that he was cheated out of a, being a championship. He made it the third, you know, he made it the fourth and fifth. So he made it right among the leaders. But that time he was number one, they was just discriminated against him. So with that said, he's the, to me, the Jackie Robinson. He's the first man to ever qualify for the national finals. He is the first man, you know, of color to ever go down the road and turn the other cheek like, you know, like Jackie Robinson. You know, and, and the history is, you know, you only can take so much. And Murdis just said, you know, he didn't have no other choice. And he didn't care if they cheated him or not. He still was going to go out there and, and try to, you know, be a champion and go and qualify for the national finals. So he did that seven times. And when I won it, you know, there was nobody more proud than I was than Murtis because he was right there at the beginning. And he was right there to pull my bull rope. So uh, that had to be one of the proudest moments as being the champion. When you are an elite athlete at the top of their game, as you were during your riding days, you know, injuries plague athletes. And I read a list of the things that you broke, and I can't believe it. You broke your wrists, your arms, a collarbone. You snapped your leg in three places that required two steel plates and 17 bolts to help hold your bones together. You lost all of your teeth and your right ear after a bull stepped on your head. And a near-fatal injury during the 1983 Presidential Command Performance Rodeo left you with head injuries to the point in order for you to continue you had to wear a lacrosse helmet. This is a lot. Yeah, that's just part of, you know, I'm just thankful that, you know, I got involved in this lifestyle at an early age. I'm just thankful that, you know, I was able to go to that bull riding clinic and that instructor introduced me to 
the magic of believing psycho cybernetics i'm just telling you that's part of you know the, my career i had was those injuries i didn't know i was afraid of getting hurt but each time i competed i was on that bull for a purpose for a reason i had goals my goals was to be the best and injuries is part of it yeah there's been times when guys would say charlie man you you know you almost got killed or charlie man and that bull damn near missed you or freaking driving to a rodeo a young driver drove right in front of us my buddy was driving he had to avoid us having a head-on collision and swerved and and the van rolled and you know we went off into a ditch and i went in back of his seat and Broke my collarbone and his wife broke her back, you know. So, wow, I could have got killed in a car accident. Hmm. I was flying in airplanes and four-seater airplanes and bad weather. And the plane shook so bad, I survived that. And so when I say God put me on this earth to, you know, acknowledge his love and his care for me and those bull riding wrecks, Wow, you know, I look at some of my videos, I'm like, wow, I survived that one, I survived that one, and I survived that one, and I kept getting back on until the day came where I didn't want to ride. It wasn't because of the injury, it's because my desire. I rode bulls because I had nothing but desire and want and determination, and, you know, that was my goal. Every year I, I wrote goals. And my goals were, you know, to be the best bull rider every year. So the injuries was part of it. But as you're saying, you knew when to stop. Some elite athletes don't know when to stop. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to stop. For me, in 92, I broke my ankle in three different places. They put all those screws on. I barely was able to walk on it, but I qualified for the finals. Well. In 93, I just said, well, you know, I'm getting older. I'm 34, almost 35. So, you know, yeah, I accomplished a lot. I've been hurt a lot. I had some other things I was looking forward to doing. But I said, you know, I'm going to just go to my favorite rodeo. I'm not going to give it up just now. Well, I eased around and went to (laughs) about 35, 40 rodeos that year. And I was successful and I qualified for the finals. I'm like, man, I didn't want to qualify for the finals. You know, there's a lot of guys out there working their butt off to qualify for the finals. But I was still successful at the bigger and better rodeos. And, I, you know, I, I made it in 15th position. I said, wow, I still had it in me. And in 94, I said, well, shucks, I still got it in me. So I'm going to go for it again. And I went to a couple of rodeos that year. And I was, I rode one bull in Fort Worth and I was flying back to Fort Worth and the Lord hit me and said, you're done. I said, what do you mean, Lord? I'm, I'm entered in all these rodeos. He said, no, you're done. And I got to the rodeo and the guys uh, was saying, what you got, Charles? I said, I got this bull. Oh yeah, he's not a bad bull. I said, no, I'm done. What, what you mean you're done? I said, I'm not getting on. Why not? What's wrong? I said, I had a, a vision of the Lord that gave me a vision last night. And 
he said, I'm, you know, I'm done with bull riding. And uh, I haven't been on a bull since, since 94. Okay, I'm going to just touch on one last thing with you because um, I know you got to go and what feed the horses or bale the hay or do some <laughs> chores, right? <laughs> yeah, always. I still got animals. Yeah. You have been lauded in so many videos I've seen by young black cowboys, bull riders, who just adore you and hang on your every word when you talk about the sport because you are so deep into the details and they love the fact that you take the time to mentor them. Well, when I see anybody that's, you know, intrigued with this sport, I look back at my background. The guys saw me as a, as a young kid and I was raised in a predominantly black area and majority of the cowboys I was around was black. But once I ventured out, you know, it became multiracial. Indians, Mexican, white cowboys, all the cowboys was right there mentoring me. And Murtis was right there mentoring me. So uh, when I became a professional cowboy, a lot of the champion cowboys, majority of them were white. And, and once I got out there, I was the only quote-unquote black cowboy out there so my story is i was this lone wolf this lone lost soul in billings montana and my hero was donnie gay many time world champion bull rider monty henson many time saddlebrook riding champion and bobby Berger, champion bull rider and i was in montana by myself at the airport, at the baggage claim, and here's all these historical cowboys in the sport. And Monty Henson walked over to me, and he said, hey, I saw you at this rodeo in Dallas. Yep, I was there, you know, I was at the rodeo in Dallas. He said, uh, well, who are you here with? I said, well, <laughs> I'm here by myself. Well, how you getting to the rodeo? I said, I, I don't know. I'm looking for a ride. He said, well, it's just us. We're going to rent a car and we got to, you know, we're going to rent a room and heck, just come with us. And I said, oh, okay. And I jumped in the car with these champion cowboys, checked in the hotel, went to the rodeo. The bull hit me upside the head and, you know, they basically took care of me and took me back to the room and you know they went out partying and I stayed in the room and the next day they said well we got to catch a flight out you know we got this room until 11 o'clock so you just check out before 11 o'clock and uh, we'll see you down the road so that right there made a great impression on me and you know once I became a known cowboy a champion cowboy Obviously, you become, you know, a role model to the up-and-coming cowboys. So all I try to do is give back to the sport because that's what they did to me. That's what Murders Dykeman did to me. That's what Gene Smith did to me. Tommy Cloud, Lee McLean, all these guys saw in me that I was just a kid willing. So 
they took me under their arm and led me, you know, down the right way. You know, there was kids that I hung around trying to take me down the wrong way. So there's a difference I had to learn. And I learned that if I go this way, I'll stay out of jail. If I go this way, I'll stay off of drugs. If I go this way, I'll stay away from people that's doing wrong. And for me, the best way to go was to stay away from the kids and the people that was trying to lead me from where I was headed. And that was being a better cowboy, which turned out to make me be a better person. And that is bull rider Charlie Sampson speaking with our former colleague, Joanne Allen, who used to host All Things Considered here. She still has her podcast, Been There, Done That, which shares the stories of the baby boom generation. Sampson is the first African-American to be crowned world champion in 1982. He's also in the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame in Colorado Springs. You can find Been There, Done That wherever you get podcasts. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to these cowpokes. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.